Now, it would be helpful if you could turn back to uh, the first epistle of John in chapter 3. That would be good. It's always a strange thing when you are invited to come to preach uh, at another church. And it's always difficult to know what to preach on. And, of course, the easiest thing to do is to go and preach on something you've preached on before. That would be the easiest thing to do. But in this case, it was the most difficult thing to do. Because what I wanted to speak on, I thought, I'm, I'm sure I've preached on that somewhere before. And then when I went to my notes, um, I had preached on the passage, but not on the verses that I'm going to consider. And I know that because I've got the notes here, which I preached on at Belvedere Road Church in about 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who are around, I've got the notes here just in case you think I've said something different. Um, so I thought, well, I'll make it a slightly different this morning. Although I've chosen to keep the same heading, and the heading that I preached on uh, back in 1997 was Behold the Love of God. So that would be the title of the message this morning, Behold uh, the Love of God. Now, it's not my intention to go over, you know, what I said back in 1997 because we'll probably be here till three o'clock this afternoon. So we're not going to do that. Um, and I'm sure you know uh, yourselves perhaps the reason why John was writing this particular letter. John is writing this letter, if you look at the beginning of the epistle, to warn believers about false opinions and teachings which had besieged the church. And there was one particular error, one main error, which had crept into the church, almost by stealth, almost unnoticed. And it was a, a, an error which came under the name or the phrase of Gnosticism. Now, that's a big word, isn't it? And if you want to know what that means, ask Eamon, he'll tell you after. Okay, Gnosticism. In essence, they were teaching another gospel. They denied that Jesus Christ uh, was God and that he was the son of God who had become incarnate. That was a denial of, of what uh, they were teaching. And uh, John, in, his, uh, in, his, in, in this first epistle, he counters that argument. Um, so John is trying to refute these false teachers um, many believers were being confronted with these new teachings. But John is careful to remind them that what he is teaching is nothing new. And you can see that if you were to go home and read the whole of the epistle, and particularly chapter 2, John, John reminds us of that. But interestingly, when I, um, when I was originally studying uh, this particular epistle... I came across, and I'll just read these notes to you. I came across uh, one commentator by the name of Robert Gramarchi, and uh, he says, if a person wonders whether he or she is really saved, they should read this book carefully and ask themselves these questions. And there's a whole lot of questions. I'll, I'll go through them as fast as I possibly can. First of all, have I experienced spiritual fellowship with God and with others? Am I sensitive to sin? Have I experienced forgiveness, cleansing and restoration after the confession? Am I keeping his commandments? 
Am I doing the will of God? Am I doing righteousness? Am I looking forward to the coming of Christ? Am I no longer marked out by habitual sin? Because this is what John addresses throughout the whole of this epistle. Am I, do I love the brothers, the brethren? Am I free from moral guilt? Have I experienced answered prayer? And do I have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit? Now, there's some questions that Gramarchy puts to us. And therefore, I suggest that I put those questions to ourselves this morning as well. But throughout the epistle, the Apostle John uses a number of tests. And for those of you who ever heard um, Mr. Ollier preaching on on. on on this particular chapter or, or this particular epistle, this, that the whole book of uh, 1 John. You will recall at the time that uh, he said that John, he gives, he brings out three tests. He brings out a doctrinal test. And that is what we are to believe uh, concerning uh, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings out a moral test. A test uh, as how... A person lives with regard to the word of God and how obedient we are to the word of God. And then finally, he brings out a social test. And that is how they behave towards other Christians. Do they love each other? And, and especially, do they love God? And that really is the construction of uh, the epistle of John. It's a fantastic letter, and it's a letter which I hope that uh, we'll try just to glean just a few thoughts from this morning. Now, I could not do justice to the whole of the chapter in one message, so I'm not even going to attempt to do that. But I want to try and focus on, on the title of the sermon, Behold the Love of God. And I want you to read with me again the, th the first three verses of uh, 1 John chapter 3, and it reads, Behold what manner of love. The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is put pure. And of course, being a child of God is a tremendous privilege that we probably don't ponder often enough. I want to be clear, when I talk about being a child of God, I want us to be clear what I mean by that phrase. Because it's a phrase that is used and abused by all types of so-called Christian groups. Those who had left the church in John's day would have said that being a child of God involves having a secret knowledge, the gnosis, <clears throat> passed on to them through some sort of anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting what John does. He takes and plays on that word gnosis, that word knowledge. So you get the phrase, we know and to know comes through time and time and time again through the whole of the epistle. 
In fact, no fewer than 14 times that phrase to know comes through the whole of the epistle. And in fact, derivatives of that term, we can see no fewer than 40 times. So John is at great pains to show us that we as believing men and women of God have the true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ and of who he is. It was William Hendrickson in his commentary on this particular passage, he says that this, uh, the epistle of John is the book of assurance. It's great, the letter of assurance. I like that. Because in it, he says, we have a summary, a summary of the certainties of the Christian faith. And I think that if we learn nothing else this morning, let's hang on to that one concept, that this is a summary of the certainties of the Christian faith. Now, there are churches today that teach we are the children of God, and although that is true in a very loose sense, in the sense that we're all created uh, by God and belong to the human race, but that is now not how the term is used within the context of the passage or within the Bible. Because John makes it clear in his gospel what it means to be a child of God. Listen to what John says um, in John chapter 1. And I read from verses 9. This is what it says. Well, we read, read, read verse 8. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was not in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of, of man, but of God. John makes it clear that those who received Jesus, those who believed in his name, were given the right or authority to be called the children of God. Now, this is not something that happened naturally. It is a, super act, a supernatural act of God through the Holy Spirit. It is not being born into this world that makes some, someone a child of God but as being born of God. It is being born, spiritually born again and having our souls awakened unto God by the work of the Holy Spirit. So hopefully having established what John means by using the phrase, the children of God, I want us in the time that we've got to look at the implications of being a child of God and living for God. So in the first place, I would suggest that a child of God, in verse 1, is someone who is loved by the Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Because, my friends, John wants us to grasp how different from all other kinds of love God's love really is. 
Now, the authorised version and the New King James Version, I believe, is a really good translation. And I believe it gets nearer to what the verse is saying to us rather than the NIV. In the NIV, it says, see what love the Father has lavished on us. See what love. See what love. But what John is saying here is that there is an imperative at the beginning of these verses in order to draw our attention to the amazing love. So what John is saying is, and you can imagine him, look, stand back, see and be amazed at the fantastic love of God. But that carries a bit more weight, doesn't it, than see the love of God? Stand back, behold, and be amazed at this wonderful love. Look, see, behold. It catches the, I believe, catches the force of the word. And what John is saying uh, is this. He wants us to let this truth sink in right deep down into our hearts. He wants us to, to ponder and understand what God's love is for us. And so we need to reflect on this love and allow it to really sink down into the depths of our being. My friends, this is amazing love. This is a love, one commentator has said, this is a love which comes from a far country. It's grace, isn't it? It's a love which comes from heaven. A new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. That's the kind of love that God has bestowed upon us. It's not a superficial candy floss love, is it? This amazing love is meant to take our breath away. Does it take your breath away? When John is saying here, now behold the love, behold what kind of love, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. It is a love in which God takes the initiative to make us his children that gives lavishly and freely to those who are utterly undeserving. Because after all, when we think of our sin, now I'm going to rephrase that. When I think of my sin and my rebellion and my hatred for Christ and contrast that with God who is holy and pure and perfect in every way, then we just begin, I think, to understand what I mean in the sense that something of what John's wonder that God should ever love a people like you and me, never mind the fact that he sent Jesus Christ, the son, to die in order for, to save us from that sin, that rebellion and that hell. And yet God's love for sinners like us is such that he delights to change us into the children of God. And John is so amazed by this, this wonderful truth that he actually says that this is what we are right now. Look at the text. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, it was just 
a few months ago. I actually, I don't know whether I mentioned this the last time I was here. I actually located where my father was buried up in Allerton Cemetery, about a thousand yards from where my mother was buried. And after 54 years, you know, actually located my father's grave. And it, it, it brought back a sense of belonging. Yes, he'd been gone a, a, a long, long time ago. But I, I knew then that I had a father and I could identify where the remains of my father were buried. But before that, it was just, it was an ocean. I didn't know. So being, belonging to a father is fantastic. I grew up in a one-parent family, one of five children. My mother looking after us, trying to make ends meet and looking, making sure we were, well, we didn't have much. But what we did have was nice and clean. So I didn't know what it was. I really didn't know what it was to have a father's love. I can't remember getting a, a birthday card off my dad. I can't remember getting a Christmas present off my dad. I remember my dad took us out once to Sefton Park when I was a youngster to watch the cricket match. But I didn't know what love, what the love of a father was really like. And yet we're being taught here, behold what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us, upon me, upon you, that we should be called the children of God. I don't know about you, my friends, but I think that that is an amazing and a wonderful truth. If I was to stop speaking now, then that truth alone would be enough to transform our lives, I believe. That phrase is enough to keep us pondering the love of God for the rest of our lives. And if you're born again, and if we're born again, then you are a child of God. And that again should really amaze us. We've been adopted, adopted into the family of the living God. And we have millions of brothers and sisters throughout the world. But again, let me emphasize that this is not something that we chose for ourselves. No, left, left to ourselves, we would still be in that state of rebellion against God. And we would still be opposing it. And we have to remember that this choice lay entirely with the Father in heaven. The Father who is motivated by pure love. Love that is at the very center of God's being. Now you know that adoption is a legal action by which a person takes into his family a child who is not his own. Who has no rights with that family in order to give that child all of the privileges of his own children. And of course an adopted child according to the law of the land is entitled to all the rights and privileges of a natural born child. But what is it that motivates someone to do that, perhaps at considerable cost to themselves? Well, I guess there are all sorts of reasons for doing so. It might be uh, a longing for children by someone who are una unable to have children of their own. That might be one reason. 
It might be pity towards those children who have no family. It might be something about a particular child that adoptive parents are attracted to. Or it might be out of friendship towards the adopted child's parents who have actually died. Lots of different reasons why people adopt children into their families. All sorts of reasons. But then we have to ask ourselves, what makes God adopt us? What is it? And the answer is pure love. That's what it is. Pure love. For there was nothing appealing about you and me that we should be attracted even for God to even look upon us. Nothing at all. We're those who are undeserving and yet God in his amazing love and grace has bestowed upon us this amazing Fantastic love. Well, some Christians find it difficult to accept God's love because God's love is unconditional and it's limitless. And we never experience that source of love to the same extent in any other human relationship. There are some Christians who have only known conditional love and restricted love. And a love that is based upon what we do and how we respond. But you know, perfect love, the love that comes from God, perfect love, we're told in scripture, casts out all fear. And as a consequence, such people don't always find it easy to accept God's perfect love. They feel that they, they always have to, to earn that love, for that is how it was as a child, they feel that they have to meet certain expectations before they know love. And I read there's a, a story which is told of a, a student who rang his father uh, to tell him of his success uh, in his exams. Now, of course, for those of you who've got children, you're always made up, aren't you? You know, you're, you think they're on pins, but as a parent, you're on pins, you know, not because you've thrown an awful lot of dosh in there to, to get them where they are and you want to see a bit of a return on it, but you never get a return on it, I'm sure you don't. Uh, but this story is told <clears throat> of a student who rang his father to tell him of his success in his exams. And it, his father's response shocked him a little. And he said, good, that means we can still be friends. You see, that was a love which was based on fear. That was a love which was based on conditions. You do well and you get the dosh. But this is not the kind of love that we're talking about here. That's conditional love. God's love for us is unconditional. And what happens when we do not accept God's unconditional love for us? Well, we try to impress God by our lives so that we, we at least feel that we're earning his love and we can embark upon some ceaseless Christian activity as though doing is the answer rather than being and relying upon the living God. My friends, his love for us is so great that he deals with us even when we sin. That he constantly reminds us of our Christian duties and that he works in us when we become apathetic or, you know, we couldn't care less. 
But he does all of that and much more. Why? Because he loves us unconditionally. And my friends, God will never love you any less or any more than he loves you at this particular moment. Don't you think that's an amazing truth? That God will not love you any less or any more than he does at this particular moment. So we all need to stop from time to time and we need to assess our lives honestly before God and ask, how much do we impress God or perhaps others? Or is our Christian activity a, 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 a true response to the amazing love of the Father that the Father has for his children? My friends, our security comes to an understanding of our Father's love for us in Jesus Christ. And our identity as the children of God does not depend upon our activity, but upon his sovereign love for you and me. Having an absolute assurance of God's love will help us, I believe, as we uh, briefly consider these next three points. And in the second place, we can see from verse one, a child of God knows hostility from the world. Look at the verse. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Knowing God's love in our lives means that we know God. And when we know God, then the result of that hostility is with the world. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. My friends, the world does not recognize us because it dismisses our message and us. We're dismissed as the people who are weird uh, with a message that is outdated and which is not relevant. And the reason for this is that the world did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it failed to recognize him and it failed to recognize his message. In fact, the world was so hostile towards Jesus that they schemed to put him to death. My friends, the world did not recognize Jesus as from God. And in a similar way, it fails to recognize you and me as the children of God. My friends, the world has no understanding of our relationship with God. It sees us all, it sees it all as a delusion. And of course, I really feel appalled to mention the name Richard Dawkins, but I will do. And he thinks, Richard Dawkins in, you know, the God delusion, he thinks you and I have lost our marbles because we believe in a supernatural God. We believe in a living God. We believe in Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment and who is God himself. We believe that. And because of that, he says that you and me are deluded. It has no understanding of what we are talking about. And that is why the media in our day pass over biblical truth as old-fashioned and boring. This is why the only time the Church of Jesus Christ hits the headlines in our newspapers is when a leading light in the church falls into sin and brings disgrace upon the name of Christ. We have to realise that the world hates God and his children. Look at verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, 
if the world hates you. We are despised as Christian men and women by the world. Oh, look, we're not being tied to the stake nowadays, are we? When was the last Christian you knew of in this country who was burnt at the stake for being a believer? That doesn't happen now, does it? But you go into work on Monday morning and people say to you, oh, Ian, what did you do yesterday, Ian? Oh, not much. And that, sorry, mate, I know you do an awful lot. But you get what I'm saying, don't you? We, 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 we see there's a reticence, there's a, there's, a, there's a reluctance as Christians. When you go into the workplace on the Monday morning and people say to you, well, what did you do yesterday? Did you have a nice week? Oh, yeah, the boss weekend. They've had a boss weekend. Oh, I got smashed over the weekend. You know, I've got a big head now. What did you do over the weekend? Oh, not much. Almost like cowardly, you know, shrinking back. Well, I went to church. What's wrong with saying that? I met with Christian men and women. We had a fantastic preacher. His name was Ian Hyam. You know, it was fantastic. We had a wonderful, wonderful day of praise and worship and, and studying God's word. My friends, we do not think like those of the world. Our priorities have got to be different from those of the world and our morals have to be completely different. Our message from time to time disturbs the conscience of those in the world. It's no wonder that the world does not know us. But that very fact is just further evidence or proof that we are children of God. My friends, sometimes when we face hostility from the world, perhaps at work or within our families or somewhere else, we can often feel cut off from God. We may even be tempted to give up our faith because of the hostility and yet we ought to look at it in a completely different way and recognize who we actually are that we are the children of God the fact that the world bothers to be hostile towards us is evidence that we are different from them and that we do not belong to this world and this ought to have the, have the effect of strengthening one's faith even the world recognizes that we have passed from death to life. That's what the passage tells us here. And the very sad fact with the church in Britain today is that we are far too much like the world. The church has gone into the world and guess what? The world has come into the church. Do you still believe that Sunday is a different day? Do you? Do you really? Good. Because there's thousands out there who don't. Tesco's is the busiest day of the week. What day? Sunday. All of the supermarkets, town, Liverpool one. You go, go to the, the cathedral at the Trafford Centre. You can see it. You can see the, the dome of the Trafford Centre as you're passing off the motorway. And they're beckoning all of the worshippers in, aren't they? Aren't they? Today, particularly, with all of their money to go and spend. Because the world doesn't see the Lord's Day as a different day, does it? Well, we do face much hostility as a church, perhaps because we're not living, thinking and acting as God's children. But we are a very poor imitation 
And this ought to cause us to ponder and, of course, to repent that we are more, that we need to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ and less like the world. And then very briefly, uh, a child of God has a hope for the future. Although there is plenty about the future that we do not know about, one thing is absolutely sure. We have a future hope. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it's not yet being revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. I think that that is a tremendous consolation, isn't it? For us as Christians, that, you know, with all of what is going on around about us, it's going to fade. It's going to pass. And then one day soon, the privileges of knowing Jesus will be known in a much fuller way when Jesus appears. And there is much that we do not know about heaven and the future, but we can be sure of this, that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, I don't care whether you're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. I couldn't care a monkey's straw. I really couldn't. One thing I do know, and one thing that you need to believe in is this, that Jesus Christ is coming again soon. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yeah. Amen. That's good, isn't it? Hey, that he's coming back soon. And we're going to see him. And we're going to see him as he is. And then we shall be like him. And the full implications of what that means is still hidden from us. But soon it will be revealed to us because we will see him as he really is. And we must remember is that the world will have an end. This world in which we know there will be the conflagration of all things. It will end. And then we're told by John in the Revelation. Then we look for a new heaven and a new earth where upon, upon righteousness dwells. History is working towards a climax when Jesus Christ will appear. The future fact is both a great hope and a great stimulus uh, to the Christian. One day we will be like Jesus, but in the meantime we must live in the light of that future hope. We live knowing that we are eternally loved by the Father, that we enjoy all the privileges in this world of being a child of God, privileges like sins which have been forgiven, being justified just as if I'd never sinned, the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, that grace exchange, that all of my sin, all of my sin has been placed on Christ and all of Christ's grace and forgiveness and mercy has been placed upon me. It's an amazing truth. Justified before God and the sure hope of heaven. While we live with complete confidence that we've been promised in the future will take place and that one day we will enjoy all that God has in store for us. My friends, this sure hope does not make us complacent. However, it will lead to this final point and that is this, that a child of God is concerned with holiness. Look at verse three. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And when we're talking about holiness, we're talking about a concept which we really can't begin to understand, can we? 
The Puritans would talk about the, the otherness of God. Something which is completely different. One commentator, Gode, says this. He talks about the, the perfections of God. And he says that the holiness of God is that perfection of God. You try to get your head around this one. The holiness is that perfection of God, whereby God makes himself the absolute standard of himself. It's completely mind-blowing, isn't it? You can't get any more holy than holy, can you? And if our future hope is centered upon Christ, then we will want to be like him. The scripture says of God that he is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity and that he cannot look upon sin. There is no exception here. Everyone who has this hope will seek to be holy. Uh, the present tense to purify indicates a continual process. So we talk about the process of sanctification. So there is a sense as a believer in which we have been sanctified, haven't we? When we came to Christ, when we were separated from the world, we have been sanctified. There's that ongoing process, that daily living, when we continue to be sanctified. And that's, that, that's our growth in grace and in holiness and sanctification. And then one day when we get to heaven, when Christ is revealed, then we will be fully complete and sanctified in him. Of course, we will never have arrived when it comes to holiness in our journey towards heaven. We must daily seek to root out of our lives all the sin. We must seek to walk with honesty before God as we go about our daily business. And we must have our hearts that are sensitive uh, to sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine repentance. When we give in to temptation and when we fall into sin, there's a, a lovely little verse, chorus that we used to sing as kids. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. It's a Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. My friends, Jesus is our example. Although he himself knew no sin, he lived in this world with all of its attractions and all of its temptations, yet he did not sin. And one day, we're going to be like him. That's going to be a glorious day, isn't it? Hey? When he will appear, when he shall be revealed, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he really is in all of his fullness, in all of his majesty, in all of his kingship, in all of his lordship, in all of his glory. That's who we're going to see soon. One day we're going to be like him. But until then, we must remember that we are God's children. We're loved by God from all eternity past. And although we have to face this hostility in the world, we have a future hope that is absolutely guaranteed. Therefore, we must seek to be holy and live in a way that is pleasing to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world 
does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 